All right, good morning. If you'd open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, writes this by inspiration to the churches in, of Galatia and, and also to us. He says in verse 23, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask now that you would open your word up to us and open us up to your word, that we might behold the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Please bless us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. In the movie Pan, uh, Robin Williams, playing the role of an adult Peter Pan, sorry if that's a spoiler, but the movie's been out for like 20 years now, so I don't feel that bad for you if you haven't seen it yet. Uh, he, He famously promised his kids, this adult Peter Pan, that he would play with them, and then he sealed the promise with the line, My word is my bond. He said that over and over to them. And then over and over, he proceeded to break his parental vow, pursuing lucrative business contracts, often closing the deal with his business associates with the same false vow, my word is my bond. And we cringe as we watch that movie because we realize his word wasn't actually his bond. But our word should be our bond, shouldn't it? I mean, if you've ever signed a contract before, you you know that the other parties involved expect you to keep your word. And in fact, covenants, which are just formal contracts, are really the foundations, the, the skeletal system, if you will, of our social lives. It's how we get along in this world. If you sit down and, and, and think about all the good contracts that, that we sign, marriage licenses, work or business contracts, a home mortgage. And then maybe sometimes you sign contracts that you kind of regret, you wish you hadn't. Book of the month club, (laughs) publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes. Do y'all remember KTEL records back in in the day? You you could get 10 record albums if you just signed the contract. You'd get 10 record albums for $1. And if you were a kid, that was a, a great way to start your album collection. But then they would kindly send you one album of the month for full price plus shipping whether you wanted it or not. And it was hard to get out of that contract. My record collection that I keep in my office, because Camille doesn't want it in the house, is testimony to the eclectic nature of it. As evidence of that, let's just put it this way. I know the lyrics to all of Tony Orlando and Don's famous hits. (laughs) You can ask me about that. Test me on that, whether or not that's true. In in our passage today, Galatians 3, verses 15 through 25, the Apostle Paul continues to argue that the Christians of the church in Galatia, they need not live under the Mosaic law. In fact, it's not just need not, they ought not to live under the Mosaic law. But this time he's going to do it by appealing to the very nature of contracts. 
not a contract that the Galatians had made and signed, but a contract, a covenant that God had made 2,000 years earlier. This morning, if you are here, maybe you don't understand yourself to be a Christian, do you, do you realize that the God of the universe has made promises, really contracts throughout history? And those promises or contracts, they include you. And he will absolutely keep his word. And I would invite you over the next like 30, 40 minutes or so to consider the implications of that. For the rest of us, maybe you, we, you do understand yourself to be a Christian. I, I would invite you to yet again consider the magnificence of what God has done for us in Christ. And if we are now living under the grace of a glorious new covenant, why would we want to add the impossible burdens of a now obsolete contract, even when so much of us wants to? Okay, so let's, let's think about this passage. But by way of context, Paul has, has written the letter to the Galatians because he had heard that the churches there, the churches that he had planted, they're kind of his, his firstborn, as I said earlier, they were, they were planted during his first missionary journey. And he, he hears a report that they are being tempted. In fact, some of them are returning, or even not just returning, but turning to Judaism, a, a, a return that repudiates the gospel that he had preached to them and that they had believed. And, and, and he takes on the arguments of those who were troubling the Galatians. That's what he calls them, troublers. He, he defends the gospel that he preached and his authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's really what the first two-thirds of the book of Galatians is about. In chapter 3 that we began last week, he argued that there's no reason to turn to the law of Moses. In fact, there's every reason to avoid doing so. Paul was dismayed. Indeed, he was shocked, shocked that the Galatians were, re- were turning to the law after they had begun with faith in Jesus Christ. And the overwhelming message of the book of Galatians is how you began is how you continue. If you started by grace through faith, then you continue by grace through faith. You don't turn to the law. And it was so shocking to him that they would think of turning to a bunch of rules and law keeping that they could never actually keep. And no one in all of history had been able to keep, but they wanted to do that. That he asked tongue in cheek, who has bewitched the Galatians? Because surely, surely no right thinking believer in Jesus Christ would turn now to the law of Moses. In our passage today, Paul presents four arguments, like like in the spirit of Cato, let's just do, do one better. But wait, that's not all, right? Five, five arguments. I know you're, 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 um, your bulletin says four, and I would blame it on Noel, but it's totally my fault. It's totally my fault. Five arguments, five arguments. Almost all of them are derived from biblical theology. He argues that God has had a plan from the beginning to redeem the world. That plan was promised immediately after the fall in the Garden of Eden. But it was initiated in a significant way with promises that he made 2,000 years earlier than the book of Galatians was written, 2,000 years earlier, to Abraham. And even though through time, God had implemented different aspects of his plan, such as the law, the covenant God made with Moses and all of Israel. It is the promise that was made to Abraham that is foundational. 
and it is central in that plan. And Jesus Christ comes as the one who fulfills the promise made to Abraham that all the world would be blessed through Abraham. That is accomplished through Christ. So in short, Paul is going to argue in our passage that the promises made to Abraham, they are fundamental, foundational to God's plan, and they are superior in almost every way to the law. And as I said, in these next 10, 11 verses, he gives five reasons why. So here we go. Reason number one, why is the promise so much greater than the law? Because the promise comes first. The promise came first in time. Look at verses 15 through 18. Paul writes, to give a human example, brothers and sisters, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Okay, so, so here's, here's his point. The promise is better than the law because the promise came first. And to make that point, he uses an example. We all recognize that contracts are binding unless something very specific happens to void them or to fulfill them. Contracts that are made are not just annulled or just added to, kind of in an ad hoc fashion. Marriage contracts are binding. Bank contracts or loans, those are binding. And if you don't believe that, then just don't pay your mortgage for a while and you find out that banks are actually pretty serious about this covenant-making stuff. Now, if that's the case with human contracts, how much more so would it be the case if the person making the covenant is God, the omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, omnisapient, all-wise, the self-sufficient, the God who has everything at his, at his fingertips, all resources necessary to keep his promises. If he makes the promise, what could possibly keep him from not fulfilling it? And Paul here argues that early on, a very foundational promise was made that establishes the agenda for how God was going to take care of the sin problem and reconcile the world to himself. Genesis chapter 12, God calls a man named Abram and says, I'm going to initiate my big plan with you. We'll talk about the plan, that the, how it was forecast in, in just a moment. But when it's initiated with Abraham, we read in Genesis 12, verses one through three, this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, God develops this covenant. We, we often call this promise made to Abraham the Abrahamic covenant. He develops it in chapter 15 and, and chapter 17. And, and we'll read chapter 17, these verses, a couple times today, but I just want to put them on the radar now. He says, I will make you, Abram, exceedingly fruitful. 
and I will make you into nations. Now, remember, this is a guy who has no kids whatsoever in a culture that valued lots and lots of kids. He's got none, and he's an old man at this point. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant, my contract between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. Now, why would I read this and why am I going to read it again later? Because Paul is saying this is the fundamental promise. In the biblical theology class that we, we're, we started today, and if you didn't make it, you can join. We're going we're gonna to hammer this storyline of the Bible, and it kind of begins here in terms of the plan of redemption. How is God going to solve the problem of, of rebellion against him? How is he going to reconcile the cosmos to himself when we have messed it all up? How's he going to do it? And it begins with Abraham. And Paul says, it all began there. That's the fundamental promise. He argues it's foundational. It came first. It kickstarts God's great plan to reconcile the world to himself. And because of that, Paul says, it takes precedence over what follows. Whatever comes after is either the fulfillment of the promise or it's something that serves the promise. The lesser is going to serve the greater. And he says the law is lesser because it just serves the promise, but the promise is the thing. He's saying, keep your eyes on the thing, the main thing, the promise that God made to Abraham. And he implies here that the law was never meant, the Mosaic law, the the covenant God later made with all of Israel, it was never meant to replace the promise or the covenant that God made with Abraham. And he's going to explain why later in our passage. But for now, note, Paul emphasizes the covenant made with Abraham is based on a promise, what we might call today a unilateral or an unconditional covenant. That promise, it was made 430 years before the time of Moses, matching the time of Israel's sojourn in Egypt, including a lot of that as slaves before the Lord delivered them through Moses. The promise is superior because it comes first. And I think we should pause here and just consider the nature of God's promises. Notice the logic of Paul here. It never dawns on him that God would commit to something a long time ago and then decide later to do something different. I know I made a promise, but I changed my mind. Oh, I know I made a promise, but I got new information. Oh, I know I made a promise, but man, that was so traumatic, you, the slavery in Egypt. We'll do something different now. Over four centuries passed between the coming of Abraham's grandchildren and Moses. But Paul knew that God's promise, it doesn't fade with time. There's no sort of like statute of limitations on the word of God. The New Testament authors will point out Well, of course that can't be the case because it's impossible for God to lie. And and when they, when the New Testament authors say it is impossible for God to lie, I'll just pause there. You've probably heard me say this before, but y'all know that there's some things we can do that God can't, like lie. That's nothing to brag about, though. In God's eyes, that's a weakness. It's impossible for God, and in the context, 
not to keep his promises. Because when he says he will do something, unlike Peter Pan, his word is his bond. To not keep a promise would for God to deny himself, to violate his very nature. He cannot do that. His word is his bond. The New Testament authors make hay with this. He always keeps his word. No passage of time, no amount of trauma, nothing will keep God from keeping his word. And Christian, that should be of great comfort to us. You, you might have heard people say, well, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. But you know what? It doesn't matter whether you believe it. God said it, that settles it. So you best believe it. You best believe it. Because God will keep his word every single time. He will make good on every promise that he has ever made. It is the most certain thing in the cosmos because it is impossible for him not to keep his word. He may do more than what he said he would, that's within his prerogative, but it is not within his divine prerogative to do less. He will keep his word. The world is spinning out of control, or so it seems. It feels like everything's shifting right now. Social ethics, sexual ethics, it's like crazy flux. Where are we supposed to put our feet? Where are we supposed to stand? Where are we supposed to find stability? Paul would say, the promises of God. We should have the same confidence in the word of God that the apostle Paul had. And we realize, don't you, God has made a lot of promises. And a lot of them are really good. Some of them are a little bit scary. Because he's promised that he's going to judge the world. For the Christian, that should be of great comfort to us. Jesus promised that he is going to return. He gave us, gave us a few details about that's, how that's going to happen. And I know sometimes we lose, we lose sight of that fact, but boy, one of the promises that we should be clinging to as, as, as we try to maintain faith and faithfulness is that Jesus said he's going to come back and he's going to judge the world, and he's going to make everything right. And so it, it doesn't matter how popular our opinions might be right now. It doesn't matter in the world. It should not matter to us how popular our faith is or our commitment to Christ is. It should not matter to us how popular it is in the eyes of the world because Jesus is coming again. He also said this, he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's a promise. And Jesus cannot not keep that promise. We can take that to the bank. It is the most certain thing that has ever been, just as all of God's promises are. If you're not a follower of Christ, you need to recognize that God made a promise that he is going to judge the world at some point. That, I would testify to you, is a rock-solid certainty. He also made promises that if you repent and believe the gospel, if you 
believe that Christ died for sin. Believe that he is Lord and confess that, that you can be saved. That is the word of God. It is absolutely certain. That's how you get reconciled to God. God made promises. Reason number two, why the promise is so much greater than the law, because Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise. We read verse 16 earlier. I'll read it again. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Now Paul here makes the case that the offspring or the seed that was promised to Abraham is Christ. And, and this is tricky because in the Hebrew, just like it is in English, the term translated offspring or seed is what we call a collective singular. It's like, you know, when you were in elementary school, you had, what's the singular for deer? Well, deer. What's the plural of deer? It's deer, right? <laughs> it's the same exact word. That's, that's what's going on here with offspring. And, and that's the way it is in Hebrew also. Now, and, and, and we know that Paul realizes this because later in chapter 3, verse 29, he's going to use the term offspring in the plural sense. So he knows that it's both singular and plural. So, 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 so what's he doing? What's he doing? I think the best explanation for what Paul is doing here is that he sees Christ as the crowning fulfillment of all the great promises of God. But in particular, there are two streams, if you will, of offspring promises that converge in Jesus. I would argue that Paul is reading the promises from a biblical theological perspective. And as we read the story of the Bible, we see that there were promises made to Abraham that those expand out to his family, which eventually becomes a nation, and then those promises narrow down to a specific offspring of David. Now, just because Josh is here, I'm going to quote some Hebrew to you, and I'll mispronounce it probably, but he can find me later for that. The, the, the Hebrew word for offspring in the, these promises is zera. Like the English words offspring or seed, zera is a collective singular. And the Apostle Paul is quoting from God's great promises made to Abraham about offspring. You might wonder, well, what's, what's going on here? What's going on? You're just playing fast and loose. You're going from singular to plural to plural to singular as it suits you. I'm not so sure. It's just as it suits him, though. As we're going to learn in the biblical theology class, it's important to read the Bible accounting for the true story. And what we find is that the great promises of God, they went to Abraham and then to Isaac and Jacob, the 12 sons who then became a great nation. But behind that promise to bless the offspring of Abraham is an even earlier promise that God had made to Satan, to Adam, and to Eve. That God would raise up a Zerah, an offspring of Eve, who would crush the head of the serpent. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I think it's, might be, there might be a slide of this. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And so there's our term. Is it plural or is it singular? The next line, he shall bruise your head. This offspring, this seed, he, singular, 
will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the offspring here is singular. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise, bruise his heel. So the offspring of the woman was key to God reversing what Adam and Eve had done. And I should note here, who's God making this promise to? Satan. <laughs> if God keeps his word, even to someone as foul as Satan, we probably should keep our word to everybody. Like, like, our, like us keeping our promises is not dependent on the qualifications of the people to whom we make promises. It's all about, are, are we going to be true to what we say or not? So this, this, with the coming of a, okay, so there we go. The offspring of the woman, key to God reversing what Adam and Eve have done. The question becomes, who's that special baby going to be? That's basically the whole plot line of the Bible. There's going to be a special baby born. We learn this in Genesis 3. Who is it? And there's lots of babies born throughout time. Are you the special baby? Are you the special baby? Are you the special baby? Right? And each time it's like, no, 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 bummer, no. Hey, this guy looked no. Right? Until finally we do get to the special baby. As we've already read, God made promises to Abraham, and they too focus on offspring, though. Look again at Genesis chapter 17, verse 8. He says, I will give to you and to your offspring, there's our word, Zerah, after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God, plural. So God talks about offspring and he uses it in the singular and in the plural. We note that the offspring here is definitely plural because God promises a kingdom to the offspring of Abraham and he will be their plural God. So we might ask, well, which one is it? Singular, plural. But things don't end there. God made more promises and of special interest to us is one that he made to David in about the year 1000 BC. So we've gone from Abraham, 2000 BC, We've already talked about Moses, about 1400 BC, and now we're at David, 1000 BC. And offspring is right in the middle of this promise too. 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13. He says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. There's our word. Who shall come from your body and I will establish his singular kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his singular kingdom forever. So the offspring here in God's promise is clearly singular. Whatever the kingdom of offspring that Abraham's children would become, the focal point, the focal point offspring is an individual. And what a singular individual that Davidic son would be. And so Paul says that promised offspring is Jesus. And by that accounting, that makes the promise greater than anything the law would or could accomplish. Jesus comes as the fulfillment of the promise. And when the incarnate son of God is the fulfillment and recipient of the promise, that means that the promise is not insignificant or throwaway. All of redemptive history, Paul says, is inclining towards Jesus. It's all moving towards him. He is the focal point. Now, it's true that Jesus came. He even said so. I, I have come to fulfill the law. But I think there's a difference between fulfilling the law and being the fulfillment of the promise itself. 
And so Paul is saying here, Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. Therefore, the promise is greater than the law. Does that make sense, what he's doing there? So if Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of God in this case, then we should recognize that Jesus is really the answer to the most important questions that there are. And again, I would just invite you consider Jesus. What are the most perplexing questions that you have about life and meaning and significance? And I would suggest to you that God's plan for you is that you find it in his son. Reasons number three and four, why the promise is so much greater than the law. Because the law is temporary, and with the promise, there is no middleman. Three and four. Look at verses 19 and 20. Paul asks, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So before he argues why the law is greater, he asked, I'm sorry, why the promise is greater, he, he, he asks the question that has been raised throughout. Paul, you're spending all this time talking about why the promise is so much greater than the law. So why the law? Why the law at all if the promise is so much greater? He's actually going to ask that question twice in our passage here. But the first answer that he gives is that the law was added because of transgressions. So that's why. Okay, moving on. (laughs) Okay, that that obviously raises another question. Namely, what on earth does that even mean? Added because of transgressions. Added because of transgressions probably should be understood to mean that God gave it to increase transgressions. But even that raises more questions. Wait, God gave rules just so we'd break them and have more against us now? So is, is he just setting us up? Why would he do that? Well, let's eliminate one answer right off the bat. Did he do that just to cause us to sin? Whatever added because of transgressions means, it cannot mean that God wants us to sin because the scriptures are clear that God hates sin, that he does not sin, and that he does not tempt to sin. Historically, as we Christians have studied the Bible, trying to figure out, so what's the purpose of the law? we've come up with three broad answers to it. Number one, to show us that we are sinners. Number two, to curb and restrain sin. And number three, to give us a guide for godly living. That's, that's why the law. If you're, so uh, the Christians have asked that question that Paul asked here. So why the law? To show us that we're sinners. Curb and restrain sin. Give us a guide for godly living. Those are the three uses. Martin Luther actually flipped the first two. So if you're listening for a Martin Luther reference, there you go. Okay, now I pass the baton to Mike. Or who, who's, who's next? Yeah, whoever's next week, you, you got to say something about Luther. Um, it, it can be just, <laughs> it can be just as, as vague as that one was. So regardless of the order, though, that's the list. And Paul, I think, in this passage is pointing us to the first one. When God's holy law is revealed, it reveals us to be sinners. The the first purpose of the law is to multiply transgressions, so it would be evident that we cannot take care of the sin problem on our own. 
our, our record of sin piles up as we see God's holy law, and that should drive us towards Christ. I can't keep the law as hard as I try. The record just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger against me. I think that's what added for transgressions means, and that should drive us towards Christ. But then in answering that question, why the law, he gives us another argument for why the promise is superior. The law is temporary. The promise is eternal. Note that Paul wrote here, until the offspring should come, until the, the seed, the, the, the one should come. The plan was never that the law would be in place forever. For those of you who like pork, thank the Lord for that, Right? The law was always just a temporary thing. The promise is the eternal thing. And the law was designed to be in place until the offspring, the Abrahamic offspring, the Davidic offspring should come. Jesus, now that Jesus has come, according to God's design, it's time for the Mosaic law to go away. When the promised offspring shows up, the time of the law is over. There's a new man in town. We're under new management, if you will. Paul's argument is this. An eternal great thing is superior to a temporary, now obsolete, good thing. So don't go back. He also talks about mediators, about angels, right? That the law was given through angels, he says. There's plenty of Jewish tradition. There's a rather obscure verse in Deuteronomy chapter 33 that teaches that the law of Moses was actually delivered by angels. It reads, Deuteronomy 33 verse 2, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. So whereas the law was mediated from God through angels to Moses, who then gave the covenant to the people of Israel with Abraham, the Lord addressed him directly and he cut out the middleman. The point here is the promise made to Abraham is superior because it comes directly from God himself, not through a mediator. It's almost as if the promise is so great, the Lord is so excited, he doesn't want to go through anyone else. He just appears to Abraham and speaks to him directly. And Paul says that makes the promise better. Okay, so, so what do we do with these, with these first four? Notice that I mentioned earlier that everything's about biblical theology, and I've referenced this class that, we're, that we just started today. I, by way of application, I would just say this, know your Bible. Know your Bible. That, that's, that's what, so Paul, when he, he writes the letter to Galatians, he, his assumption is they knew their Bible so his arguments would make sense. The Bible is not a collection of spiritual sayings. Or it's not merely that. There's a flow to the scriptures. It chronicles a true story where things change over time as God implements different parts of his plan over time. And so read your Bibles. Read all of it. Here at, at, at GBC, we understand all the Bible to be God's word, and so we're going to read it all. We're, we, we alternate in our preaching between the New Testament and between the Old Testament. In the fall, we're going to launch a, a sermon series on the book of Deuteronomy. We think, well, isn't what Deuteronomy? That just means second law. Why the law? Why? Right? Because Paul just said it's that that this, this this law is inferior compared to the great promise that was made. But that doesn't make it inferior in an absolute sense. The law is still a vital part of our story. 
It's just not the part of the story that we're in right now. But if we want to understand who we are and how we got to where we're at, we have to understand what was going on with the Israelites way back in 1400 BC. So you can count on coming here. You're going to hear sermons from the Old Testament because we understand it to be the word of God. Young people, read your Bibles every day. Get to know your Bible. Read your Bible with us. Come on Sunday. I'm preaching to the choir here, right? Come to Biblical Theology Cast. There, there, there's my pitch for that, another one. Then I, I have some books up here which you can look at but um, afterwards. But let me recommend this, especially to parents, the Children's Story Bible written by Catherine Voss, whose husband was Gerhardus Voss, who is really the modern father of biblical theology. But everything he wrote was so confusing that his wife actually sat down and wrote something that people could understand, right? And, and this is our second copy of this, I think. We, we have worn this thing out, reading it to our kids, and then I think also to our grandkids as we have opportunity, right? And what she does here is she tells the story of the Bible, and she does a better job of connecting the dots from story to story to story to story of, of, of anyone that I have considered or read. And i got a few other efforts at this, you can take a look at these. I won't give you the names of them. You can look at them afterward if you're interested. But a couple of these I use in, in my seminary classes. But they're just, what's the story? What's the storyline of the Bible? Get to know that. I, I recommend this to the parents so you can teach it to your kids. But really, as you read this, my goal in this is that you'll understand it better. And she's a really good teacher. Okay? So, Child Story Bible, Catherine Voss. You can get it on Amazon. It even comes with like really old pictures, too. It looks very dated but that's okay, right? Okay, we're getting close to the end here. Reason number five, why the promise is greater than the law, because the promise brings life, and the law does not. Look at verses 21 through 25. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. I'll just pause here and just, just say this very quickly. <laughs> Law is the easiest thing in the world to, to do conceptually. Grace is far harder because it, it involves just kind of putting our lives in the hands of someone else. And we like to put our lives in our own hands. Just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do, Lord, and I'll do it. How do I get right with you? Do I need to read my Bible? Do I need to pray so many times a day? Do I need to give so much money to the church? And, and I would say, yeah, do all those things. Those are great. But that won't reconcile you to God, even though we wish it would. And so Paul says, gosh, God's, God's not dumb. He knows the easiest thing to do would be to give you laws if that could actually reconcile you to God, because every fiber of your being wants to do something to reconcile yourself to God but you can't. It's harder. So Paul says, if the law could have ever given life, then we could have just ended with the law. But it doesn't. Instead, it feels like it imprisons us. It drives us to reach out to someone else. And in this, he says, that someone else is Christ. That's the whole point. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. 
But now that faith has come, we're no longer under the guardian. So he asks again, why the law? And the answer, because we needed a guardian. We might even ask this, well, is the law at odds with the promise? Is is Moses at odds with Abraham? Are these covenants clashing? And, And Paul says in very strong language, may it never be. That can't be the case. Don't even think it. Don't even think it. Far from being in competition, the law does play an important role in the one plan of God. If the law could have brought about righteousness, well, then there would have been no need for the promise. It could have stood on its own. But that's not the case, so the law was given for a specific purpose. The law increases our sin. It makes us aware of our sin, and it drives us in desperation to the promise. All other paths to God are shut off. Paul, when he's writing to the the church in Rome, he says in 1132, God has consigned all to disobedience. Why? That he may have mercy on all. When we come to the end of our rope, when we quit saying, God, tell me what to do to be right with you. When we say, God, I can't do it. We put ourselves in his hands and he says, now I can show mercy to you because you're in the right place. And, and, and if you're not a Christian and, and, and you might wonder, it's like, man, these Christians are all a bunch of hypocrites and they're always telling us what to do. You need to know by definition, Christians are not someone who are going to tell you what to do. We're Christians who know that we can't actually do anything. And, and, and if there is hypocrisy in our lives, we are deeply, deeply sorry, but we're not surprised because we know that we're sinners. Our invitation to you is there's always room for one more. One more person who recognizes your need for a savior. That's what Paul meant by imprisoned us all under sin. Therefore, the law serves the promise. It demonstrates that the only hope for righteousness is through the grace of the promise through Christ. And so the the law, it doesn't give life. The promise does. Paul designates the entirety of the period between Moses and Jesus. He says it, he he just, he almost like dismisses it as that was before faith came. That was before faith came. And, and, and what he doesn't mean there is that nobody in the Old Testament had faith. Well, of course they did. He said that Abraham was justified by faith, right? What does he mean then? It means that the new covenant, the, the time after Christ is so joyously wonderful. It's so clear the significance of the promise of faith that Paul shorthands the entire era before that as before faith. And he talks about our time, our era. It's the time of faith. The time before the law, Paul dismisses it as the time of immaturity. When we as humans, we needed a guardian a, a, a pedagogue, a, a nanny, a babysitter. God gave us the law to watch over people during the era of immaturity. And I know that when you know you are of age, you don't like having a babysitter. Because every now and then we'll say to our kids, we're teenagers, well, we're going to send you over to Natalie's, or we wish Natalie, our adult daughter, would, she'll, she'll watch them, she'll babysit you. And they're like, Babysit? <laughs> what? We don't need a babysitter. We don't need a babysitter. The nanny, that is the law, it could never give life. It wasn't designed to do so. 
It was the placeholder, the guardian, the custodian. It was appointed to watch over people until the day when Christ would come. But now that faith has been revealed, the page is turned. Thankfully, we're in a new era. So my final word of application to you is, why would we want to go back? It's like the, the cranky old men of comedy sketches who talk about when they were young, they walked to school in the snow, uphill, both ways, ate dirty, rotten vegetables for lunch, did their homework using their own blood, and we liked it, they'll say, right? Well, no, no one would like that. That sounds miserable. You know why? Because it would have been miserable if that's how their lives would have actually been. I, I, I don't want to go back. I only want to go back 50 years or 20 years. I don't want to live in the days where if you cut, you know, like in the 1700s or 1600s or any time before that, when you cut yourself shaving, you could get an infection and die. I love living in the 21st century. I want to use a, micro, a microwave. I don't want to reheat my food in the stove. I definitely don't want to reheat it over a burning fire. No thanks. In many respects, the, the good old days that we talk about, they weren't that good. They weren't that good. And Paul here is talking about something way more important. Because when it comes to being reconciled to God, there were no good old days. There were not. Instead, we have, a, we have good new days today. The people who lived back then under the law yearned for the day when they would be set free from imprisonment under the law to relate to God the way we do and can every second of every day. We're now in the good old days, and we should only want to go forward and never back. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we're grateful for what you accomplished in Jesus, doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. Father, keep us humble, keep us clinging to promise, never seeking to justify ourselves, never seeking to try to make ourselves right with you, but putting ourselves in your good hands. We are grateful, and to the extent that we are not, change our hearts and forgive us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.